this is Jay, and welcome to Pastor Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. The following episode was originally a Patreon bonus episode from February 2019. While it's titled Affluenza, it is not about the case of Ethan Couch, known as the sensational Affluenza case. This episode discusses the incident in early 2019 of students from Covington Catholic High School in Northern Kentucky facing off against a small group of Native American activists at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. It's about the successful shift of the narrative from what could clearly be seen on camera as teenage boys displaying rich boy arrogance and anti-Native American racism to these same boys being portrayed by the mainstream media and powerful benefactors as helpless victims preyed upon by angry Black and Native adults looking for a fight. On the surface, this is simply an altercation between teen boys and activists at the nation's capital. But when we look deeper, this story is also about white privilege and male privilege. It's a story about a group of all-male, mostly white, prep school students behaving badly on a trip designed for them to protest the bodily autonomy of women who are subsequently able to work their place in the class and racial hierarchy to their advantage at the expense of Black and Indigenous People of Color, or BIPOC. I decided to publicly release this episode because the zeitgeist is perfect to gain a greater understanding of how privilege works. While many white Americans and other non-BIPOC are talking about systemic racism and beginning to consider how it manifests in policing in light of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, what better time than today to also examine how systemic racism impacts the way we see young white men versus young black men, perpetuating a system where one young man could behave badly and be rewarded, while another could be minding his own business, be accosted by a stranger, stand his ground, and end up dead, his murderer going free. Check out the episode, Affluenza, starting now. This month's Patreon bonus episode from Potstir Podcast is about perceptions and how we often see incidents through different lenses, even when we're watching the exact same thing, and we have the same set of facts at our disposal. Grosse Point, Michigan is a well-to-do, old-money east-side suburb of Detroit. Many people who are from outside the area have heard of it from the 90s John Cusack movie, Gross Point Blank. But what many people don't know is that there are actually five gross points that share a border with each other, ranging from most modest to most affluent. Gross Point Park, City of Gross Point, Gross Point Farms, Gross Point Woods, and Gross Point Shores. But that range is a matter of degree, because compared to Detroit and other east side suburbs, even the poor part of Gross Point, as locals call it, is more affluent, nicer than most anywhere on the east side of Metro Detroit. Gross Point Park shares a border with one of the rougher parts of Detroit, 
And that's been a bone of contention in recent years, as Gross Point Park blocked off one of the main roads that connected them with Detroit. On the other end of the Gross Point spectrum, Gross Point Shores is the wealthiest city in Michigan. It's where the historic Ford Mansion is located. Yes, those Fords, as in Ford Motor Company. And if you've ever seen the Clint Eastwood movie, Gran Torino, spoiler alert, the wide shot at the end where the character Tao drives down this scenic road with a beautiful blue lake, Gross Point Shores. I grew up in the city of Detroit, five blocks from Gross Point Park. At the time, my neighborhood was in pretty good shape, but you can definitely tell a difference the moment you crossed Mack Avenue and stepped into Gross Point. Large homes, manicured lawns, clean streets, expensive shops. Even in winter, their roads were actually plowed. My last year of high school, as well as the summer after my first year of college, I worked at a local hardware store in the village, the downtown area in the city of Gross Point. Many of my coworkers, who were mostly teens too, lived in Gross Point. Most of them attended the local schools, some private, others public, but even the public schools in Gross Point had a stellar reputation. Many of my coworkers weren't working there because they needed a job or even because they wanted to be independent, but because their parents wanted to teach them responsibility. The employee section of the parking lot was full of nice new model cars, including a red Mustang and a stately Benz. I would occasionally get to drive my dad's 20-year-old Dodge hatchback with a broken speedometer, and a few times I biked there. But most of the time, my mom dropped me off, and I'd have to wait what seemed like forever until one of my parents came to get me after clothes. But it was so wild. One of my coworkers told me about a classmate that threw a tantrum because her parents got her a new Jeep for her 16th birthday. She wanted a Bentley. While working at the hardware store, I had a coworker. We'll call him Bronson. He was around my age and in high school. He was tall and lanky, curly brown hair and pretty blue eyes. He was charming and fun, and I enjoyed working with him. Apparently, when he wasn't working or going to school, he was in a garage band, and word was he would throw these big parties when his parents were out of town. We usually shared a shift or two each week, and he was a decent enough worker. But one day, he got fired. See, Bronson and his friend had been running a scheme to shoplift from the store, where the friend would come in and pick up a bunch of items, and Bronson would pretend to ring it up. I have no idea how long they had been running it but there had been a lot of theft at the store, so there's no telling. So because of the suspected shoplifting, the store installed cameras around the store, including along the wall behind the registers. We even had a mandatory floor meeting about these new cameras. Then a week after these were installed, the pair tried one more time, and this time they were caught. The scheme was uncovered and Bronson was fired. While he didn't get in trouble with the police, he was banned from the store for obvious reasons. I never saw him around again. The summer after graduating high school, people at work were whispering about Bronson. He made the local paper. Why? He and three friends, all high school seniors, had chased down a seventh grader who was apparently walking alone after school on the last day of school before summer. This group of high school seniors grabbed the 12-year-old by the neck and forced him to drink tobacco spit. This was a big enough deal to hit the local press, but just as quickly as it was reported, it went away. 
I can't say for sure as to why, to be honest, but I suspect that it had something to do with the dad of one of the seniors being on the school board and Bronson's dad being a prominent local attorney. Because just like the shoplifting, that assault incident went away pretty quickly and his youthful indiscretions weren't allowed to hinder his future. The recent incident in Washington, D.C. involving the teenagers from Northern Kentucky who taunted a Native American elder made headlines in late January, as did the later split in public opinion along the familiar lines of partisanship and race. It is the story of the Covington Catholic teenagers, a story of a public who rushed to judgment before all the facts were available? Or is it a story about how, just like in the case of Bronson, the privilege these boys had, that of class and race in America, can make sinners into saints with the right price and the right connections. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. January 18th, a group of about 170 students and four chaperones from Covington Catholic High School, an all-boys Catholic high school in Park Hills, Kentucky, right outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, went on a field trip to Washington, D.C. The school was in D.C. to participate in the March for Life, an anti-abortion political demonstration. The march was held at the National Mall. After the march, CuffCath, which is what the school is called locally, was at the Lincoln Memorial waiting to be picked up. Accounts vary as to what happened next, and I encourage you to watch all the videos to make your own judgments. But from having watched the video, plus reading accounts from people who were there, here's the gist of it as far as I can gather. About four or five black Hebrew Israelites, a small fringe cult known for extremist preaching in big cities, were preaching at the Lincoln Memorial. From their mostly stationary position, they were heckling a lot of passers-by, one of whom was wearing a Make America Great Again hat. This went on for quite some time. It's hard to tell exactly how long it was happening, but it was for at least an hour according to the long video that the Black Hebrew Israelites posted. At some point, the Black Hebrew Israelites and the group of Cuff-Calf teens, a third of whom were wearing MAGA hats, were heckling each other and students began to sing and chant, including one of them ripping off his shirt and dancing. Some reports state they were making monkey noises and gestures towards the BHI group, but I'm not 100% sure on that. The BHI and CuffCath groups started to move closer together. The adult chaperones could not be seen from any of the videos I watched. Meanwhile, there was an indigenous people's march that was scheduled for the Lincoln Memorial, which was what some observers were there for. The Native American marchers numbered at about a dozen, give or take. You can see them earlier in the video picking up trash at the memorial. So going back to CuffCath and BHI, as these two groups were moving closer together, the Native American marchers with instruments stepped in the middle. You don't really see the BHI group anymore because as the Native American marchers stepped in the middle, the students enveloped the marchers. You can see the teen mob jumping up and down, some making tomahawk gestures and mocking the music of the marchers. The lead of the march, Nathan Phillips, who is a Native American activist and former Marine, 
is confronted by a teenager wearing a MAGA hat. His name is all over the media, and I'll get more into that in a moment, but I refuse to give him his 15 minutes of fame. We'll just call him the Smirker. The Smirker stares at Phillips with a taunting smile as the other teenagers surrounding the marchers are screaming and jumping up and down and gesturing. Phillips says they were chanting build the wall and other abuses, though with the loudness of the video and the chaos, it's hard to substantiate what is actually being said. So the video of the stare down between Phillips and the smirker made it to social media. Initially, much of the mainstream media expressed outrage. The school, the mayor of nearby Covington, near where Cuffcath is located, the local bishop, and many others locally and nationally expressed outrage. Then, over the next couple of days, a longer video was discovered. This video was from the perspective of the Black Hebrew Israelites. That's the video that I mentioned earlier. It showed more of what occurred before the stare down. All of a sudden, it was no longer the Cuffcath teen's fault. It was the Black Hebrew Israelites' fault for provoking them. And it was Nathan Phillips' fault for aggressively approaching the smirker and threatening him with his drum. And then the hit pieces came out, saying Phillips wasn't a vet because he didn't go to Vietnam, and he's a professional agitator since he's an activist, and he's a recovering alcoholic and he committed criminal offenses in his youth, so that must mean he must be lying about the incident, and the boys were right all along. And then, a number of mainstream media outlets, including CNN, were taking back what they said and making admissions that they rushed the judgment. And conservative outlets were saying, we told you so. The school was backing down. The bishop was apologizing to the students. And Donald Trump, ever the uniter, was tweeting the teens' praises and inviting the cuff-calf teens to the White House. Why was there all of a sudden this sharp change in the narrative? The smirker attends Covington Catholic High School. The school costs about $10,000 a year to attend, which is a lot in the Cincinnati area, which has a pretty low cost of living. That means that in general, the parents who send their boys to this school are people of means. And while I haven't seen press about the smirker's father or what he does, his mother holds a prominent position at a Fortune 500 company. So his family has money, enough money to hire on RunSwitch PR, a public relations firm out of Louisville, Kentucky. But RunSwitch PR is not just some local firm. One of the firm's principals is Scott Jennings. Scott Jennings has served as a spokesman for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Not only that, Jennings is a regular CNN contributor who frequently appears on the lead with Jake Tapper. RunSwitch PR wrote the prepared statement the smirker gave regarding the incident. They've likely prepped the teenager for when he appeared on the Today Show. They have the connections to mainstream media, particularly CNN, to change the narrative regarding the incident, where the smirker was central. They have the connections to the National Republican Party. And not only did they likely use those connections, RunSwitch PR played on society's willingness to give white people the benefit of the doubt in conflicts involving people of color. They played on society's willingness to grant extended childhood to white males well into their adulthood while not granting the same to children of color. 
And this tendency goes way back. During slavery and Jim Crow segregation, blacks were often not allowed to serve on juries or testify against white defendants. And in states with significant populations of other groups of color, this was extended to them. During this period, for example, California had a law on the books that would not allow the testimony of, quote, blacks, mulattoes, or Indians, end quote. And a court case extended this prohibition to all people of color, including the Chinese, who constituted a sizable population in California at the time. So the idea that whites were more credible than people of color has a long history. Even in the last few decades, white males are often talked about like youths that should be coddled and not made to take responsibility for their actions, even if they're adults. For example, Michael Fay was an 18-year-old Missouri native who was arrested in Singapore in 1994 for vandalism because he had spray-painted several cars over a period of months and stolen road signs. Because of the multiple counts, 52 in total, Fay was sentenced to a fine, four months in jail, and six lashes with a cane. The way the media treated this case was to make Fay seem sympathetic. For example, an article in the Orlando Sentinel written at the time chronicles Faye's life up until that point, including an interview with his father. The article was entitled, Dad Feels Frustration Over Son's Fate. From the article, quote, if the whipping is carried out as expected, Michael Faye would be the youngest person to be caned in nine years and the only one for vandalizing private property. The youth's father, a 47-year-old chemical engineer and chief executive officer of an Ohio company, blames himself for his son's predicament. He thinks he was too stern a taskmaster, and so the youth believed he could never measure up. End quote. The article continues, talking about his parents' divorce when he was eight and his parents remarrying other people. It also mentions his younger brother's birth and an attention deficit disorder diagnosis that are said to have affected Faye. Another article in the same paper has the headline, Faye asks for prayers. Clinton calls the caning a mistake. The U.S. government lobbied to have the sentence reduced, which Singapore eventually did, reducing the lashes from six to four. But the way the media treats young black males, including ones that are under 18, is completely different. Trayvon Martin was a 17-year-old Florida teenager who was shot while walking to his father's house from a convenience store by neighborhood watchman George Zimmerman. Zimmerman ran up to confront Martin, despite 911 advising against it, and a fight ensued, leading to Zimmerman killing Martin. Although it was Martin who was approached, and he was unarmed, Zimmerman argued his actions were justified due to Florida's stand-your-ground laws. Check out this article from 2013, also from the Orlando Sentinel, entitled, Zimmerman attorneys say jurors should hear about Trayvon's pot use. The article includes the following, quote, Trayvon Martin brought marijuana with him to Sanford from South Florida, according to new paperwork filed Tuesday by George Zimmerman's attorney, and used it at least once before he was killed, end quote. It goes on to say, quote, at the time, Trayvon was serving a 10-day suspension because school officials had found an empty marijuana baggie in his backpack, end quote. No sympathetic quotes from his family. No stories of Martin's childhood humanizing him as a youth who may have had flaws like a lot of other kids but didn't deserve to die. 
we instead get all of Martin's apparent transgressions that, because he was smoking weed, he wasn't innocent and his death was his own fault. And here, we also get the dynamics of wealth. Both Thay and Martin were from families where their parents were no longer together. But Michael Fay's dad was a CEO, and the article and others like it mentioning his dad's career gave him instant respectability that Trayvon Martin didn't get the benefit of. Martin was labeled suspicious as a young black male wearing a hoodie from a broken family, and that means he's a thug who doesn't belong, right? How newsworthy incidents of conflict are discussed matters because it bleeds into society's perceptions. Race matters because black males are automatically labeled threats in a way that white males are not. Black people are no more likely to commit crimes than white people controlling for wealth. And for drugs specifically, blacks and whites use at similar rates. Yet blacks are arrested and incarcerated at a much higher rate than whites. It's not because black people are inherently more criminal or that there's something wrong with black culture, but because poverty is often a driver of desperation and apathy and therefore crime. And there is still a wealth gap between the races and black people are more likely to be targeted by police than whites. So black males are often considered a threat by their very existence even when, like Trayvon Martin, they themselves are the victims. Wealth matters because it makes it easier to see wealthy people, especially wealthy white males, as innocent and their bad behavior can be chalked up to boys will be boys. Look at the Senate confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court to see this in action. The rest of us don't get that benefit. And it bleeds into the justice system, which often sees wealthy white perpetrators as kids who screwed up, while those without wealth don't get the same benefit. These perceptions have real-world damaging consequences. That is why the U.S. government lobbied on behalf of Faye. That is why Zimmerman was acquitted of Martin's murder. The 2013 case of Ethan Couch also puts this into focus. Couch was 16 and lived in Texas. His choice of drug was alcohol, which is not legal for anyone under 21 in the United States. Unlike Martin, whose marijuana usage only led him to buy some Skittles and an Arizona tea, Couch's alcohol use led to a drunk driving accident that killed four people and severely injured two others. He was staring down a 20-year sentence, but his family was able to afford great counsel for him. And the defense was that Couch was suffering from affluenza. He was a victim of having been raised by wealthy parents who never set limits on his behavior. For this reason, Couch was deserving of sympathy and leniency, which the judge granted. Ten years probation. That's it. No jail time. Nothing. Now, two years later, Couch violated probation and ran across the border to Mexico, accompanied by his mother. He was picked up in order to spend two years in prison, and after that he was released. So he only got two years total for killing four people because his wealth did it. Circling back to the Covington Catholic teens, what they did, even when taking the most awful accounts, doesn't warrant a criminal charge, but the treatment they have received lays bare the intersection of race and class, 
and instead of absolving badly behaving teenagers of responsibility simply because they can suit up well and their parents can professionally rehab their image, we should focus on the fact that they were ignorant, should be held accountable for their actions, as well as the chaperones who were watching them who abdicated their responsibility. Covington Catholic High School made national news once before, and that incident wasn't positive either. A few years ago, their students were wearing blackface at a basketball game. Also, just last month, a former CuffCath basketball star was arrested for rape and sodomy. While this is an adult charge, he had been registered as a juvenile sex offender for an incident in May of 2018 while still a student at CuffCath. And here in the Cincinnati area, Covington Catholic is no outlier regarding bad behavior, including racist behavior. Last year, the students of Elder High School, another Catholic high school in Cincinnati, hurled racist taunts at players of an opposing team during a basketball game. And racism is an issue here in the Cincinnati area when it comes to the schools. A rec league team in nearby Claremont County made up of students from King's High School in Mason wore jerseys ordered by the coach with racial slurs and words suggestive of racial slurs and stereotypes printed on the back of them. The team itself was called the What Dream Team. I wish I were kidding. No one seemed to have a problem with this until the team's first road game, when parents on the opposing team complained. The team was kicked out of the league, and a board member for the King's School District, who was a parent of one of the kids on the team, resigned from the board, tearfully apologizing for the jerseys. So maybe this gives you a little bit of a picture of how this region is, and what kind of birthed the mentality of these Covington Catholic teens. While I'm not stating that racism is everywhere here, or that Covington Catholic only produces terrible people who shirk responsibility, I am stating that as someone who has lived here for a decade and a half, I'm not surprised about the behavior of the CuffCath teens. There's a lot of work to be done here. With that in mind, let's talk about the Make America Great Again hats. A third of the Covington Catholic group wore these MAGA hats. It wouldn't be a big deal here in the Cincinnati Tri-State, but in D.C., a larger, mostly Democratic, predominantly Black city. That's a much bigger deal. I've seen a line of argument that's popular here in Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky that goes something like this. Oh, they have a right to wear them. It's their First Amendment right. No one should have said anything to them because of these hats. Adults should leave kids alone. These libs get so deranged over these hats. They're just hats. It's TDS, Trump derangement syndrome. A few thoughts. If the MAGA teens being called out by the black Hebrew Israelites for their MAGA hats was a violation of the Cuffcalf group's First Amendment rights, they would have been arrested or the government would have found a way to target them. There is no COINTELPRO going after MAGA hat wearers. That's not what happened here. Random street preachers calling you out, isn't it? Having a Native American elder standing in front of you beating a drum, isn't it? You have your free speech rights, and so does everyone else. Covington Catholic is a college prep high school. If they think no one is going to call them out on the street in a year or two when they go to college for anything, even ridiculous stuff, they're going to have a very rude awakening. If their parents or the school itself didn't want the kids to be exposed to being heckled, they shouldn't have signed off for them to go to the nation's capital where 
Unlike the classroom, they cannot control the conditions. If it wasn't a small group of black street preachers heckling everyone, it could have been an actual hate rally, or women running around topless, or people walking around with posters of fake gory baby parts. Oh, wait. The point is, if the school and the families are upset about what the teens were exposed to, they should have thought twice about sending them to a political rally in a city most, if not all of them, are unfamiliar with. The world is not responsible for coddling your teenagers, teenagers that are probably doing God knows what right under their parents' noses anyway. The adults that had the responsibility, it was not BHI, it was not the Native American group. It was the teachers, the administration, and the parents. These kids were not in Northern Kentucky or anywhere else in the Cincinnati area. Here in this area, MAGA hats are no big deal. And it's not uncommon to see Trump and Obama bumper stickers on cars. But this wasn't the Cincinnati Tri-State. This was Washington, D.C. While the teens were within their legal right to wear the MAGA hats, it was extremely unwise for the adults to permit the students to wear them and essentially allow these teens to stand out for unsavory reasons. I own clothing that might be considered mildly controversial, whether it's my tour shirt from a Slayer concert with a skull and pentagram, or all my Ohio State tees. Go Bucks! I'm not going to step into church with my Slayer shirt, even though the church I go to might not mind it. And I definitely am not dumb enough to gear up in Buckeye regalia on an incidental trip to Ann Arbor, unless it's game day and there's safety in numbers. Point is, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. But here's the bigger issue with the cuff-calf teens wearing the MAGA hats. It's not simply a fashion statement. It's not like choosing a skirt that hits above the knee instead of at the ankles, or wearing a puffy jacket instead of a wool one. The MAGA hat is a symbol. Symbols have meaning. That's why athletes kneeling during the national anthem is a big deal, because it's not just a song and a piece of fabric. If that was the case, no one would care, and they probably wouldn't be doing it. The flag and the national anthem are symbols that have meaning, both to those who get angry at the people who kneel and for the athletes who kneel and their supporters. And the meanings behind symbols matter. If you wear a necklace with a cross or a star of David, that means something. If you wear a hijab, a yarmulke, or a turban, that means something. That communicates your faith to other people. And getting to the more sinister side of meaning, Clan hoods, swastikas, and SS thunderbolts have meaning too. Not just pieces of fabric, but symbols with meaning. Now, let's talk about the MAGA hat. The MAGA hat is the symbol of support for Donald Trump. According to Rich Lowry of Politico, quote, it speaks to the marketing genius of Donald Trump that he managed to create not just a potent piece of campaign memorabilia, but a cultural marker that will forever be associated with this period of our national life. The MAGA hat denotes support for him, yes, but also unapologetic patriotism and a certain boldness. In large swaths of the country, the hat is commonplace. The Covington kids go to school in a suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio, where support for Trump was strong in 2016. Surely many of their parents, teachers, and priests voted for him. End quote. But this cultural marker also means something else. According to Cam Wolf, writing for GQ, quote, 
Wearing a MAGA hat aligns you with the policies of the very person who made that hat famous and who has sold them by the box full. That is, the president who started his campaign painting Mexicans as rapists, criminals, and drug dealers, who lustily bragged about grabbing women by the pussy, who has stoked hate crimes, and who seemingly desires more than anything else to build a wall at the U.S.-Mexico border, who thinks America needs to be made great again like it used to be. The hat alone is a symbol of hate. All of Trump's retrograde policies and dog whistle statements conveniently wrapped into a bit of red fabric, end quote. And I think we need to recognize that the MAGA hat symbolizes something. It symbolizes a man who, while president, has enforced a zero-tolerance policy separating families legally seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border, allowing children to be neglected, abused, and even left to die. He has pardoned a criminal sheriff who profiled Latino immigrants and subjected them to tent cities where they were not provided medical care and some of them died before even having their day in court. Trump has endangered health care, allowing the CHIP program to lapse, and has worked to chip away at the Affordable Care Act instead of improving it. He installed a known bigot as attorney general whose mission was to incarcerate as many people of color as possible and was a proponent of private prisons. He blamed both sides after white supremacists swarmed Charlottesville, Virginia, and committed at least two hate crimes that killed Heather Heyer and injured DeAndre Harris. The MAGA hat symbolizes support for a man who has done all this and more. Symbols have meaning. Do I think the Cuffcath kids know the full meaning of the MAGA hats? Maybe, maybe not. They were teenagers, too young to vote for Trump in 2016 and going through adolescence, which is a turbulent phase of life. Are they really going to know all there is to know about our political climate? Will they even care? But they are only a year or two away from having the right to vote. And if Covington Catholic is the great college prep institution locals say it is, they would have learned at least something useful in civics class. Thing is, even with the most charitable explanation that they didn't know what they were wearing on their heads, in a sense that makes it even worse. Not for the teens, but for the adults. Adults, again, meaning the chaperones and the school. What is not in dispute regarding the MAGA hat is that it is a political symbol. And Covington Catholic High School is a religious institution. The school thought it proper to send students of an all-male high school to a city that likely few, if any of them, know anything about to protest the right of other Americans to a procedure none of them will ever have. The school and the parents are using teenagers as pawns in a political fight they have no business being a part of at this point in their lives. This is terrible judgment. The Roman Catholic Church is against abortion. For them, it's a moral stance, but that is not the church's entire stance on life issues. The Catholic Church also opposes other acts that would extinguish life, such as capital punishment and euthanasia. However, in this case, Covington Catholic was not treating abortion simply as a moral issue, but a political one. Organizing a field trip to an out-of-town anti-abortion rally is using children as pawns in a moral crusade, which is exploitative, but allowing them to wear the MAGA hats is purely political. 
This is not a First Amendment issue. As a private religious school, they are allowed to restrict the students' freedom of expression at school events in ways public schools cannot. But the other part of that is Covington Catholic, as a religious school, likely enjoys tax-exempt status. A stipulation of that is not being political. You can still uphold your religious values, but being political, especially supporting a candidate, is a violation of the code. Donald Trump announced his bid for re-election February of last year. He is running for re-election. The school allowed support for Trump in their name. Covington Catholic High School should lose its tax-exempt status. If you want to be political, great. Just pay to play like everyone else. The teenager who squared off against Nathan Phillips was able to take his privilege to the bank and was able to settle a $275 million lawsuit with CNN for an undisclosed amount. As of January 2020, the young man's attorney also said that they intended to sue Phillips as well. I have yet to see new information regarding that lawsuit, but it is clear that this all occurred and this young man learned absolutely nothing. But our system is designed to coddle people like him. Liberal activist Michael Moore recently stated that Democrats and liberals need to be careful when it comes to this election because White male Trump supporters are filled with rage and emotion. I don't know to what degree Michael Moore thought his statement through, but I want you to imagine for a moment that this same statement, this idea that rage and emotion would consume a specific population, if this was applied to most other populations, and especially if it was applied to Black and Indigenous people of color then we wouldn't be looking to change the narrative to coddle that population. We would be looking to quell it. Look at what happened for years when it came to Black Lives Matter up until the point where there were interracial protests, interracial uprisings. Up until that point, Black rage was something to be feared and something to be stamped out. And even with the protests, the Trump regime still looked to stamp that out. But when Michael Moore said that white male Trump supporters were filled with rage and emotion, guess who retweeted that as if that was a good thing? None other than Donald Trump himself. And see, that is the problem. And with this particular case, with the Lincoln Memorial standoff over a year ago, and we look at what's going on today, what we can see is that we are a country that already coddles the feelings of white males, especially conservative, cisgender, straight white males. Am I saying don't listen to white male conservatives? That's not necessarily what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that they are not the only voices in the room. And we need to stop acting like they are the only ones who matter. And at some point, we need to look at things differently because this is how we got here. And going back to this case, as for Nathan Phillips, to be subject to anti-Native American racism at a protest and then be sued for it. Gross, but not surprising. After all, this is America. 
Thank you for listening to Pastor Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more where that came from. And if you're really liking Pastor Podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. It's not to stroke my ego. It's just to increase visibility so more people can enjoy it. Check out PastorPodcast.com for all episodes, merch, and more. And my second home is apparently on Twitter. So follow me at PastorCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.